Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have James Moe. He's the CEO of uh, Oligomerics. It's O-L-I-G-O-M-E-R-I-X.com. James, thanks for coming. Well, thank you, Richard, for having me. Yeah, tell me about uh, the company. What's the premise of it? We are a company that's um, focused on neurodegeneration and um, neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's being, for which there's no disease-modifying therapeutic interventions that are existing at this time. And when we started the company, that that was the case. And um, what we did was, when we started, was to focus on a protein called tau protein, even though the rest of the field was focused on amyloid, because we believe, based on the literature, that tau was also a, a major player in, in disease. So we... Mm. We positioned ourselves kind of on the other target, which was somewhat differentiated us. But others who were focused on the tau target were focused more on the later stage fibrils. But we decided that it might make more sense to move upstream to block tau from binding to itself. And so that began our quest for developing self-association assays. And ultimately, that's what's led us to this point. And in the U.S., there's 5.8 million people have Alzheimer's, but it's believed that by um, 2050, that could go up to 14 million. And it's a significant burden on the on the healthcare costs. It's it's actually over 100 billion right now, and it's projected to go up to 1.1 trillion by 2050. So it really is a major yeah. burden. And, and also, it's the sixth leading cause of death, and it's the only disease for which uh, there's no... Uh, progress being made, and so so it's actually you know becoming more prevalent, not less prevalent as as our population ages. So it's an important disease. Yep. Those so what appears to be physiologically what what happens in someone's brain as when they have Alzheimer's? You know, uh, what's happening with amyloid? What's happening with tau? What you know? What does it look like? Yeah. So one of the things which is amazing is that these proteins start to aggregate many, many years before you see their their long-term effects and even decades uh, prior to that. And so is considered to be to to develop its pathology a little bit later than amyloid. Um, amyloid is, is earlier. However, what's been fascinating about tau is they've developed the pet ligands. They've shown that regions where there's neuronal loss or nerve cell loss within the brain correlates to where tau tangles are located. And so there's a lot of data now suggesting that tau is, is a, you know, could be a valid therapeutic target for AD. And, and so for us, we made that assumption many years ago by deciding to focus on this target. Amazing that the field has kind of moved into tau as we've been working and, and how much new information and new learning is going on that supports our initial decisions. As you know, in an early stage company, those early decisions stick with you a long time. So happy that 
you know, we we didn't go on the amyloid target because that's been a very difficult target. And many of the pharmaceutical companies have focused on that. And, and as you've probably heard, many of those drugs have failed in the clinic to show any. Yeah, none have worked so far, right? Yeah, none of them have worked. And the other well, thing. They've, that, only, they've only spent billions and billions. I mean, yeah, it's really it's amazing how much, you know, the the both the industry as well as, you know, the government has spent so much money. And yet, you know, there's not a drug available today, but there's a lot of knowledge that's being built that I think is helping us to understand the disease patho pathophysiology as it develops. And I think it will lead ultimately to disease modifying approaches. So I'm very encouraged by that. One thing which we did do was we decided that since AD was a disease that progressed over many, many years, we thought that people may be on treatments for many years. And so we favored a small molecule approach for that reason, and also because tau is an intracellular protein. And so most of the aggregation with tau occurs inside of ner nerve cells. And that's why we thought it ideal to focus on a small molecule approach to prevent tau from binding to itself and forming its pathological structures. And so what's the premise of your therapy? What does it look like and how does it act? Well, what we did was we developed these highly sensitive assays for detecting tau when it binds to itself and then screened the library of large drug-like molecules. And so we started with pretty good templates from that screen. And that was a screen of, you know, many, many molecules, many, you know, tens of thousands of molecules. We selected a small subset from which we started then to develop our, our optimization of our hits into leads. And so what we did was Knowing that this is a target requires these molecules to go across the blood-brain barrier, we put a lot of effort into giving them the types of properties that CNS drugs have so that we could get good uptake into the brain. And as we optimize them, we, we, we selected our lead based on both its activity, but also it showed a lot of favorable results in terms of its off-target activity. We really didn't see any off-target activity, and we didn't see any signs of toxicity. So... That's what moved us in the direction of our lead molecule. And this was done simultaneously with our collecting efficacy data. And what we've done is in our efficacy studies, they were carried out blinded in the laboratory of Peter Davies at the Feinstein Institute of Medical Research. And through we've had three studies that were preventive paradigm. Two were in HTAU, which is a model that has is most like Alzheimer's because it has all six human isoforms and no mouse tau gene and no mutations. And so we showed efficacy in a, in a primary study there, blind it, and then in a confirmatory study there. And then we went into the harder model, which is a mutated tauopathy model called JMPL3 that models frontal temporal dementia and, and, and progressive supranuclear palsy. And we also showed activity in a preventive paradigm there. Now we have two therapeutic studies that are reading out now, and we just presented some of the data from our HTAU study showing that we had a pretty good reduction in, in, the, in several parameters that we measured in that study. We haven't looked at all parameters, but we're starting to let that data out as well. So that being said, it looks like this compound could work in either a preventive or a therapeutic approach. And that is, you know, that data, the efficacy data plus the preliminary safety data is what um, made us decide to move it into preclinical development. So that molecule is already well along in its preclinical development program and heading into the clinic, hopefully. Uh, well, all right, so what, what does this molecule do? 
if it gets into the brain, does it break up the plaque or does it, you said it prevents it from adhering to itself and growing? Yeah, so it's, it's in our case, we're targeting tau, which is the molecule that forms the tangles. So we're not directly targeting plaques, but what it will do is it will prevent tau from misfolding and forming its pathological structure. And one of the nice things about our in vivo data is that it showed that we were causing a global change in tau such that phosphorylation was diminished at three different regions throughout the molecule, which is really quite remarkable. And now if you pre- now what happens is if tau is accumulating off of microtubules where its normal function is to, to assist in transport in nerve cells, then if you can prevent it from forming pathological aggregates, it could either be cleared by normal cellular processes or it can go back and, and do its normal function by moving back into the axons of the nerve cell. So the, you know, pr- primarily we're preventing this misfolding that then leads to what they call the parathelical filament, which is the first step in fibrillation. When tau forms these fibrils, it's an irre- irreversible reaction. So we're at being at the upstream point of the um, aggregation pathway, we're actually in a, in a region where it's reversible. And other approaches that target it more downstream, many of those ended up selecting compounds that just prevent the formation of beta sheet structure. And the problem with that approach is that those compounds tend to be very toxic. And also there's a lot of beta sheet in other proteins. And so you'll have a lot of off-target activity. So we think by being more upstream, we're going to prevent tau from forming these pathological aggregates in, in our human clinical studies. That's what our hope is. And then the tau will, will be cleared. And, and this way, you'll be pushing the equilibrium away from forming you know, the kinds of structures that are neurotoxic and downstream of where we're targeting. How many different levels of structures are made? Is it just this one type of structure that's made, or does it go through a series of steps where it gets more and more dense or irreversible or, you know, it changes its function? That's a great point. Well, there's one thing, you know, there's a lot of interest, as I mentioned, we we focused on small molecule, and uh, the great thing is we get into neurons where tau is aggregating. But the field had a lot of interest in the fact that tau pathology appears to be spreading throughout the brain, and tau may be templating its own spread in a prion-like manner. And so people looking at that have found numerous different strains of tau depending on the origins of those uh, specimens. And the great thing about where we are in the cascade is we're upstream of the formation of those strains. And so one of the things that we were really encouraged by was when we looked at, when we when we were able to get successful results, both in a non-mutated as well as mutated tauopathy models, because the, the mutated tauopathy, the one that we were looking at had a P3NL mutation, which takes a proline out and it puts a leucine in, but it makes tau much more prone to aggregating. But because we're at the upstream part of the aggregation cascade, even with that mutation, we saw very good activity. And so so we think that we chose a region that maybe is less uh, susceptible to the effects of different strains of tau just by virtue of being more upstream of those uh, structures being formed. Now, in terms of irreversibility, it really becomes irreversible when tau gets truncated. So this protein will self-associate and then 
form a pathological structure that enables beta sheet formation between the two monomers that are bound to each other. And at that point, we see a lot of evidence that tau gets truncated at that point, but it also gets truncated once it forms these intermediate filaments called paired helical filaments. And, and either way, once tau gets truncated, then it's lost its normal function, and it also may have lost its ability to be cleared through normal cellular processes, depending on where it got truncated. And so we're looking at these fragments of tau, which we believe are mechanistic as potential biomarkers for, as that could show potentially as surrogate markers for the tau oligomer levels in the brain. And uh, that's a second program that we have ongoing with our preclinical development program. And if it bears out, those fragments could guide us in our clinical studies and also, you know, could it could even be used for potentially for recruitment and to monitor effects and to show, you know, that you're hitting your target in the clinic, but also could form the basis of some kind of a future diagnostic platform for screening. So we're very excited about those as well and, and working in parallel on, on both of them. When tau migrates to form these structures, what does it leave behind? Holes? Uh, what, you know, what happens to the material from where it comes? Where does it get replenished? Well, I think one of the things that's going to happen is that you're going to have loss of synapses that that's occurring, and ultimately, and so as neurons lose, you know, their connections to other neurons, then they lose their their the reason for them to even uh, be there. So, the, so the more loss of synaptic function you get, you know, the more loss of synapses, the more neur neuronal um, loss you're going to get, and so by preventing tau from developing these kinds of pathological structures, you're going to help to preserve the synapses that you have and, and therefore, you know, hopefully to therefore preserve the neurons so that the neuronal loss is minimized or or reduced as a function of the treatment. That would be the that would be the ideal actually of any intervention would ultimately to be to be able to show that you're you know, slowing down or, or preventing neuronal loss, because that's really the, the end result of, of these pathologies as they develop within the brain. And if you could slow it down, for instance, then that could be very beneficial both to patients as well as their family, their family and the caregivers that they have taking care of them, because it could also potentially allow them to maintain an independent living, you know, to, to be able to carry out the um, daily activities of living without having to have assistance. So I think that would be a major improvement for anyone who's, who's either a patient or a caregiver for someone with neurodegenerative diseases to slow the well, disease. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You said these, these, uh, these aggregates form over years and decades. Do these form before beta amyloid, same time? And why do you think it takes so long for them to form? Why, why is it such a slow reaction? Well, that's a good question. And, and, you know, you brought up an interesting point. One of the things when we started out as a company and we were designing our assays for targeting tau, we, we realized that this is a very slowly progressing disease. And so we didn't want to accelerate tau aggregation as others were doing in the field. And so that was one of our motivations for moving towards a tau self-associated target because we didn't add anything to make tau to bind to itself. And uh, But I think the field, you know, 
feels pretty solid that amyloid is aggregating and detectable aggregates, you know, prior to seeing tau tangles. However, that doesn't mean that you might not have soluble tau aggregates that can't be visualized with the PETS ligands that are out there that might be having a toxic effect that just you can't see it until you start to see the tangles accumulating. So I think there's still a lot of questions about why it why the progression is so takes so long and is so slow. But I think that, you know, I like I like to think that it's partly because, you know, each person is different, as we know, and each person ages a little bit differently. And and some people, of course, may have been exposed to conditions, for instance, with tau, you can develop chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is you could develop head injuries that will create tau pathology that will then spread throughout the brain and in a disease that's very similar, but not the same as Alzheimer's. And so, you know, even in AD patients, the actual triggers that carry, that cause the initial damage haven't exactly been identified. However, in general, the, you know, any injury or oxidative conditions or ox- oxidative stress, you know, could be contributing. So I think that one of the things about the pathology developing slowly and over time, which makes it kind of a benefit, would be if you have a therapeutic that works that's relatively safe and you can identify who will develop the disease, then you, then you have a chance for intervening long before there's you know a massive amount of neuronal loss. And so I think it, it brings opportunity in addition to the fact that there's challenges to figure out what happened when the pathology has been developing for more than 10 years. So it's it's a, it's a it's a very and that's one of the reasons why the disease has really been a difficult disease to crack, but I do think that with the mass amount of knowledge that the field as a whole is developing that we really are on the cusp of some major disease modifying therapeutics and you, I mean, you've probably met people. I've met people who are who are well into their nineties um, and 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 have you know really good cognition and and certainly that's something that probably many people could have if they didn't have these underlying neurodegenerative diseases occurring. And so, you know, I'm a firm believer that as, as companies like Oligomerics are successful in developing these therapeutics that slow or arrest the disease that you're going to be able to benefit, you know, millions of people over time in a short time, really. And you, um, do, you, do you have access to cadavers where you've been able to pull out uh, the plaques and look at their structure and see if there's an associated, you know, microbial component that resides around them and look at them? Has anyone done that? Like 3D modeled them, cut them, sliced them and looked? Oh, yeah. You know, people... Um, and and I I spent you know a fair number of years working on infectious disease. People have been exploring you know an infectious component to um, Alzheimer's for many years, and there's a lot of different kind of hypotheses around around that, including you know bacterial as well as viral as well as indirect methods. So I think you know could it be true that some of these are creating insults or damage that helps to start this cascade? I think that's a possibility, but it's sort of like, you know, one could think of protein aggregation as sort of like a forest fire where, you know, when a forest catches fire, a lot of times you don't even know what started the fire, but there's many different things that could start the fire. And what, what leads to it is 
the actual accumulation of the material that can burn. And so you know that if you're going to accumulate a lot, a lot of firewood, eventually there's going to be a spark and there'll be a fire. And the same is true as you accumulate, for instance, tau, as, as a lot of tau comes, if tau loses its normal function and it's not able to bind to microtubules and starts to accumulate off of microtubules, if there's trouble clearing tau out, then then you have the possibility of it starting to develop these kinds of pathological structures. And clearly there are genetic components to this. I mean, many different genes now have been linked to neurodegeneration. And so, you know, there's probably more that will still be discovered. And, you know, maybe that some people, for instance, when you look at head injury, right, there there could be some protective function that gets activated when you have a head, head injury that just can't be shut off. And but maybe those same people, if they didn't have a head injury, they would ultimately develop Alzheimer's. Or maybe in Alzheimer's, you know, you have mitochondrial dysfunction so that you're creating a lot of oxidative conditions inside of neurons, which is completely abnormal, right? That shouldn't nor- normally be happening. And so you could look at those as the two extreme cases where, you know, one is like an external event causing it, and the other is as you age and lose your functionality. You know, part of that could be also contributing. And then there's, you know, circulation as well. So if you're, and, you know, the, the effects of any you know, microstrokes or strokes that people have had that could be creating that damage. But once that damage is created, I think the fact that tau may continue to propagate, there, there may be some insight as to, to, uh, the, to me, the holy grail in the future would be to figure out how to shut that down completely. And, uh, you know, that may tell us something. We may, we may develop mechanistic insights when we discover how to do that. And I, I do think that will be possible eventually. I should mention, I didn't get a chance to do that. Because we're small molecule, a lot, a lot of the large pharmaceutical companies are focused on immunotherapies for tau. And so the great thing about being positioned as a small molecule therapeutic is that we were a complement to those potentially. So... And in fact, maybe necessary, right? So, so maybe the two in combination might be very powerful, right? If you could clear extracellular tau, preventing it from moving from neuron to neuron, while preventing tau from aggregating within neurons, that might be the you know the the most effective way of of arresting the disease. And I think one one thing we hope is that our initial early clinical studies, where we'll be looking at biomarkers, probably in a tauopathy for some of these studies. We're hoping that we'll get some insight into that. Well, what happens to the adjacent area where tau starts forming these aggregates? Is that where all the neuronal death happens? And is there like a clearing away of the neurons to make space for the tau to be, you know, the tau plaque to grow? Or does a tau plaque push it out and displace the neurons? Like, has anyone figured that out? No, it's a little bit different. I think tau will aggregate within a neuron and then ultimately the neuron will die. And so... As tau is aggregating and the disease progresses, you'll start to develop these tau tangles. And that tau tangles and amyloid plaques are the two hallmarks of the disease that were first identified by Alois Alzheimer's probably about more than 110 years ago. So they're they're fairly large. They're they're the size of, of the neuron body. And when the neuron dies, they pretty much are remain where the neuron was. So you can actually see where the neuron was because the aggregated tau is very persistent after the neuron has, has died. So there's things called ghost tangles that remain. 
But tau, you know, it is inside of neurons that it's aggregating. So it's a little bit different than amyloid plaque, which could really, you know, accumulate. Some of these plaques can really accumulate, but those occur extracellular because the APP protein is a, it's a protein that spans the membrane and the A beta gets cut off of that protein on the extracellular side of the cell and, and therefore aggregates outside of neurons. So they're, they're in two different locations and clearly they're, they're related to each other. As you start to build up amyloid pathology, you also start to see hyperphosphorylation of tau as you have hyperphosphorylation of tau, you start to see more aggregation of tau and in human clinical specimens. And so these are all related. And one of the things which was great about our in vivo studies, which you have to remember that these, when we say they're tauopathy models, they're really mechanistic tau models. And but what was really great was that, you know, being able to see at multiple sites that you're reducing phosphorylation shows that you're you're globally having an effect and i think that that's you know hopefully that's going to be a strong enough effect that we'll we'll be able to see an improvement in the clinic so if you reduce like the agglomeration of tau inside of a cell that's going to slow the likelihood that the cell will die i guess it gets reabsorbed like what what is the biogenesis of tau well could either yeah so again it could either continue its normal function. Again, it depends on where it is within that neuron. So tau is an axonal protein and binds to microtubules. And it could also be cleared by normal cellular clearance processes. And, you know, I think that as it gets truncated and forms these insoluble fibrils, these may actually be protective structures. And so it may be, and this was one of the premises when we started oligomerics was that the smaller soluble forms of, of tau may be the most neurotoxic species. And so that was one of the reasons why we decided to focus on them as therapeutic target. So, so in, the, in the ideal world, you know, you would clear out tau, right? It would be like the analogy to the forest fire where you went in and you, you got rid of all that dead wood before the forest fire occurred. That's kind of a pretty good analogy. Right. Do you know if there's a, you know, like certain, certain organs can't be transplanted and people that sign up to be organ donors, you know, brains can't be transplanted. So I would think that of all the people, let's say that signed up for organ donation, there should be a vast repository of those people's brains. And perhaps you can get access to maybe someone that has a database of them and you could have samples from you know, thousands of different brains and look at them, whether they have disease or not and see the progression of this tau formation and all kinds of people across a huge range. Yeah, and I, I think people are doing that. And, and one of the more exciting areas, as you know, or you may maybe know, that there are very good pet ligands now for both amyloid and tau. And so people are even allowing themselves to be in trials where they have their brains imaged with these pet ligands for, for numerous imaging over time, right? And so there's longitudinal studies where they're looking at how fast tau is accumulating and 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 amyloid and in what regions, and then and then downstream what regions are there neuronal loss. And uh, there was just recently a paper by LaJoy and others that in in twenty early 2020 that showed that that the regions of neuronal loss were where the tau was aggregating and it correlated very highly. Whereas it didn't correlate as high with the regions where amyloid was aggregating, 
the neuronal loss. So, so the tools are there to really understand this process. And I'm not saying that that one paper solves everything, but I think that, that what makes it very exciting is that you're actually able to see that in living patients over time. And I think that that's also going to help. And then many people, as you mentioned, will donate their brains. I think a lot of times, a lot of the different brain banks you know, it are, are at hospitals. And so those brains that they have in their brain banks are coming from people who are being treated in their, you know, in their hospital institution for neurodegeneration. And so, yes, we are seeking many of those tissues and us being a private company, it's not quite as easy as, you know, academia to get access to some of these things, but we have been um, persistent and, and continue to be persistent to get those kinds of specimens. And then we're also buying those specimens wherever we can. And because as you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of information that, you know, we're, we're especially interested in, in looking at, you know, developing our biomarkers, as I mentioned earlier. So getting match sets of, of say, you know, brain as well as CSF and plasma, because then we can look for, you know, in brain lysates, are these fragments there? Do we see them in the CSF? Do we see them in the plasma? Can we get, isolate them in the plasma? And so that's the kind of work that we're doing right now in our biomarker to try to understand that. But I think you're absolutely right. As more and more people are participating in these kinds of studies over time, it's going to provide a wealth of information to the field. Ultimately. You should ask the uh, brain banks if you could pick their brains. That's yeah, joke. <laughs> absolutely. Um, What's been observed in living people's brains when they use these PET tracers? Uh, what, what's observed? Well, what's interesting is they can watch as tau accumulates and see where it's accumulating and over time. And then one thing which people are looking at are functional networks. And so our, you know, functional networks are like kind of like the regions of the brain that would be used for, for one particular associated memory or task or, or, or a thing like that. And so you know, there are some correlations between the loss of, of these functional um, networks as well as that occurring in regions where you're losing neurons. I think that that's less surprising, but then when you correlate in that tau is in those regions where you're having a lot of loss of neurons and synaptic connections, then I think it makes it, you know, more highly um, correlated to the disease. So where are you at in, uh, in terms of clinical trials? Are you about to go into phase one? Have you done some? Like... Yeah, so we're we're right now in preclinical development and we're preparing to, if, if we look at the next 12 months, we plan to have a pre-IND meeting with FDA in about six months, and then we'll file an IND application in about 12 months so that we can start our, our first clinical in healthy volunteers in the beginning of 2022. And then our goal is, Assuming that we can successfully complete that, and that's a phase 1A study, we would do single ascending dose and multi-ascending dose. Then we would file, at the end of the year, 2022, we'd file a, an expansion and then look at go, go and look in AD patients or tauopathy patients to see if we can see an effect using biomarkers, and that would be our phase 1B trial that we're planning. And Very good. Yeah, so we're we're gearing up really to have two sets of trials going in parallel, but they both of them rely on this first study, which is the phase one A. And so we made a lot of progress in our preclinical development program that's progressing right now. And you know, we even though you know 
many things got disrupted by the COVID crisis. We were, we were kind of fortunate in the sense that all the CROs that we're working with for these studies were deemed to be essential. And so we didn't get any interruption on this project. So, so we're still moving forward you know, at the same rate. Of course, you run into you always run into some uh, delays, but none of those delays have slowed the overall program. Thank goodness. Yeah, no, that's good to hear. Yeah. Well, very good. What, what's the best way for people to keep tabs as you go along? Move along. Yeah. Well, we well number one, you know, we're going to be publishing some of the work, and we continue to do outreach, and and we go, continue to go to scientific conferences and to present, but. But we also are going to revamp our website, and that's something that's going to happen in the near term. And, and we plan to make it extremely informative to helping you know, people to maintain us an update as we move forward into the clinic. So those are the ways that they can find out about us. And there's also contact information on our website. And, and certainly, you know, anyone who feels compelled should re- reach out to us uh, through that. Very good. Well, James, thank you for coming in. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Richard. I appreciate a lot the opportunity. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.